0: And whether you are ready or not, Christmas is upon us. I don't um I don't know. I was coming into Christmas is always a challenge for me because I, you know, I'm not the most naturally like joyful person on the planet. Coming into Christmas on December 1st and coming into church and there's lights and there's Christmas carols and all of that, it's like man, that's a lot. Uh, so we are particularly excited about Christmas. I, I don't know, maybe you saw on the news that over the course of the um, the, the holiday uh, weekend, something like $7 billion was spent on between Thanksgiving and the end of business on Good Friday. I mean, not Good Friday, Black Friday. $7 billion. That's unbelievable to me. What a hassle that is. How many of you? We're in that crowd of people on Black Friday. How many? Be bold. I see that hand. All right. A couple of you guys. Fantastic. Well, the weeks leading up to Christmas are always very stressful uh, for me. I don't know if that is true for you, but Christmas gets complicated. I don't know if it's because I work in the ministry or because I have small children or what it is, but Christmas is overly complicated for me at times. There's this heightened expectation of finding the perfect gift and surprising people with that perfect gift, which I have not mastered the art of surprising people with things they exactly want. I can go to the store and buy what you tell me to buy, and I can surprise you with a gift, but when you combine the two, it becomes a challenge for me. And then there's this influx of family that gets out of control. If you come from a divorce situation like me, you're trying to decide which house do you go to, whose home are you going to be with this year, where are you going to be next year, who's there for Thanksgiving. There's always people coming in and out of your house that you really don't like that much. And it is just overly complicated. And then there's the thing that gets me each and every year, which is the holiday parties. And uh, they totally overcomplicate things for me because they absolutely stress me out. And I don't know, men, if this is the same for you, but in my house, this is how things go for us. When we're pulling up to a holiday party, whether it's an office party or a neighborhood party or whatever it may be, and we're pulling up, we're parking on the side of the curb, and I have this conversation with my bride. So, not going to rush you, but how, I mean, just how long do you want to be here? Just set the expectation for me. Give me some parameters. If it's two hours, I will be social and happy and smile for two hours. If it's three hours, I'll be that for three hours. I just need to know, and which ruins it for her uh, completely. And she says to me something like, I just want you to relax and have a good time. And I will say something back to her like, that's exactly what I want, but I need parameters in which to fully relax. I have to pace myself and dose this out over a period of time. And so I need to know how long am I going to have to be this way. (laughs) My wife gets me on this. She loves this part, the social part of the holiday season, and she knows I'm an introvert who has learned to be extroverted. And so she gives me a lot of grace and uh, space when it comes to these sort of situations. But complications around Christmas are profound. And it's hard on December 1st to say, we're here, it's time, let's get happy, let's be about Christmas, because we as a society have overcomplicated it. And even at times, I think the church has overcomplicated it. But this morning, as we start this new series through the month of December called Simply Christmas, I want to take a few moments and just break Christmas down to the most fundamental, simple element I've shared with you in the past that my favorite part of the Christmas story are the shepherds. I find it significant that the first people to hear of the birth of Christ were some smelly, dirty sheep herders. You know how that story unfolds? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were so afraid. But then there's this little part that comes next in the story, and it simplifies the entire message of Christmas. And if there's anything that we should focus on in this season, it's the simplicity of this message. It's found in Luke chapter 2. Let me read to you a few of those verses. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So the shepherds are there in the fields, and an angel appears. And he says to them the same thing that all angels in Scripture say when they pop down from heaven in a beam of light to unsuspecting earthlings. Do not be afraid. But then he goes on to say, I bring you good news. The phrase good news is where we eventually get the idea of gospel. The word gospel actually means good story. So the angels could have said, we are here to start a good story. We're here to bring you a good story. This is good news. In fact, it's so good that it's going to be great joy for all people. Not just the shepherds, not just the Jewish shepherds, not just the Romans, not just the people of that time. Everyone today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. To you. So what I want to do this morning as we jump into this fantastic holiday season is explain to you why the angels could say this is good news. Because the story of Jesus and the gospel, and specifically the story of Christmas, is all good news. Before we dig deeper, I want to understand the filter, the lens that we're going to look through this morning. We're going to spend some time in the book of John. Maybe you've heard of John, St. John. He was one of the followers of Jesus, so close that when Jesus knew he was going to die, he asked John to take care of his mother. Now, you and I have friends, and then there are close friends, And then then there are those people in our lives that we would say, I'm going to entrust you with a member of my family. Well, that's John to Jesus. In fact, tradition tells us that John took that request so seriously that he eventually moved to Ephesus to be closer to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if you go there today, this is the house that John and Mary lived in in the latter years of their life. The relationship between John and Jesus was incredibly special. And John has the luxury of living a very long life. He saw the healings, he saw the death, he saw the burial, he saw the resurrection of Jesus. John was the only one to live to be an old man. And at the end of his life, it occurred to him, I should write some of this stuff down. People were eager to read what he had written and his writings circled the known world. And people would read it and they'd have more questions. They would want to ask John questions because he spent time with Jesus. They wanted to know what would Jesus do in this situation or that situation. So they made little bracelets that said... WWJD. <laughs> Just joking. They wanted to hear from someone who had quite literally walked with Jesus. So John wrote more letters to the churches and he answered questions. John wrote a book that we have included in Scripture and called it Revelation. But as John is at the end of his life, he is writing what we have come to know as the Gospel of John. And in it, he describes a story about a conversation between Jesus and a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very respected man in the community. He was a religious leader and pretty famous. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night and wants to better understand who Jesus is. And Jesus is telling him what it takes to get into heaven. And right in the middle of this story, John gets so excited that he pulls out of the story and he kind of blurts out on paper, this is how the whole thing comes together. So in this conversation with Nicodemus, we we read things like, Jesus said this, Nicodemus said that. And then right in the middle, John bursts out with this extraordinary statement, probably the most famous statement in all of John's writing, maybe even all of Scripture. And in just one sentence, the Apostle John grabs the essence of the good news that was proclaimed by the angel to the shepherds the night Jesus was born. So John says in his book, in chapter 3, Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He did what in love people do. For God so loved the world that He did what you do when you love someone He gave. That is the good news. This is a striking contrast to the normal experience of the day because you see, To to the Gentile world, to the Roman person walking around during this time, the gods didn't love them. They toyed with them. They were there for their own pleasure. So for John to say, he loved you, is significant. And would have caused people to say, "Hmm, I need to pay attention to this. This is different. In the first century, when John was writing this text, in this small and simple verse, he's saying, I think there is a better way. God loved this world, so he gave his one and only son. John takes it even one step further and he invites each of us into the story when he says that whoever, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, whoever, from the little baby who is yet to sin to the 85-year-old with a lifetime of sin, whoever, everyone, no distinction, Gentile, Jew, Roman, soldier, man, woman, young, old, whoever whoever believes in Him. John is sitting there writing this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever... I just picture him sitting there saying, whoever, whoever, what? How do I say this next phrase? And so he chooses the most common Greek word, pastuo, which means believe. He uses this word pastuo Which is where we actually get our whole understanding of belief. He chooses this word and then he gets stuck. Because the word pistou, which means believe, like we believe, I believe in this, I believe in that, I believe in love. Whatever we believe in. In the Greek, to complete the idea, they would add a preposition. uh, The same preposition that we would use the word in. They would use it also, only it would be epsilon nu or en. So believe in. I believe in love, I believe in the Easter bunny, I believe in. But John is saying this believe in doesn't cut it. This isn't enough. So for John, it's more than a belief in the fact that Jesus lived or Jesus died or that Jesus existed. So John instead uses a different preposition. Instead of epsilon nu... He takes a different preposition and he adds it to pastuo and he creates a whole new thought. He uses the preposition ice and he changes the idea of pastuo into a verb and into an action. Ice is a preposition that means toward or into. And in that moment, John establishes a brand new idea. Many have written to say that this is the first time this sequence of words appears anywhere in the Greek language. Right here in the book of John, he takes a preposition that means into, a preposition that means towards or leaning in, and he uses it to establish a new concept, concept of trust. It's the idea of leaning into or towards something. And John is creating a new idea of believes toward, the idea of believing toward. And John in this moment is trying to capture the very essence of what it is that Jesus came to do. Capture what it is that Jesus has asked the world to do in response. And he puts these two words together and creates this idea of trust. That whoever trusts in, whoever leans into, whoever believes toward, whoever moves into, that's the idea that John is describing in John 3.16 as he describes belief. You know, for the first seven or eight, six or seven years of my ministry career, I was a youth pastor and I used an illustration, maybe, I don't know, a thousand times. But it's the idea of trust. That when Jesus is talking, or when John is talking in, in uh, John 3:16, he's talking about this belief into, the idea that right now I am wholly trusting in myself to stand up. I'm trusting in my legs, I'm trusting in my shoes, my feet, my body to hold myself up. But, and I can, I can believe that this stool is going to hold me, but until I literally sit down and take my weight off of myself and put it on the stool, I haven't trusted in the stool's ability. I haven't truly believed in it. And I think at times you can have one foot off and one foot on, and you can sort of, I'm sort of trusting in myself or I'm trusting in God, and you can go back and forth, but until you are fully on it, you're not really believing or leaning into or trusting in that this stool will hold your weight. And that is what John is talking about in our understanding of our belief in Christ and our belief in God. That that has to be a full-throated trust of what it is that He did on the cross for you and for me. It's an exchange. John is saying it's not a belief in, it's not a belief that, it's an exchange. It's a decision that I'm going to put all my trust, all my weight on what Christ did on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever trusts in, believes into, shall have what? Eternal life. Whoever believes in or trusts in shall not perish, but have eternal life. You won't come to an end. The little word perish is a very common Greek word, and it literally means cease to be. John is saying, if you place your trust in Jesus, you will never cease to be. He grabs this little phrase, shall not perish, a phrase that was very common in the culture. Jesus has come so that you will not perish, so that you will have life eternal. God loved, God loved, God gave. We believe and we receive eternal life in exchange for our belief or our trust God gives us. Eternal life. The idea of eternal life is really important and often, I think, misunderstood. But Jesus, at the end of his life, prays this really significant prayer. And John captures that prayer in his, in his gospel. And in this prayer, Jesus defines exactly what he means by eternal life. John 17, 3 captures this prayer in the garden in, near Jesus' death. He knows what is about to come. And he prays this in John chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, as defined by Jesus, is a relationship with God that never ends. If you tease out the Greek a little here, you will read this. You could read this as that they may have introduced to you, that they may have moved into relationship with you, that they may have an intimate knowledge of you, God. It's purely relational. John is saying, "I want to give all of humankind knowledge of and a relationship with my Father." That is the good news. In John, in, in earlier in John, in John 1, uh, verse 12. He puts it this way, Yet to all who who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, yet to all who did receive him, what do you mean by receive him? To those who believe in his name. What does it mean to believe in his name? It means to receive him. How do we receive him? You You believe in his name. Believing is receiving, and receiving is about becoming a child of God. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. Now John follows up verse 16 of chapter 3 with an often overlooked verse. Uh, it's verse 17. It comes right after John 3.16. It's amazing how that works out. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God, God's one and only Son. You see, the good news that was proclaimed in that field to those shepherds, we've come to bring you good news. That good news is found right there in John 3.16. God did what God does. God who loves you, loves Me, sent His Son, His one and only Son, that whosoever believes, that whosoever puts their entire trust in Him will have an eternal relationship with God the Father. He didn't do that. He did not come to condemn. He came to be in relationship to make you a child of the living God. He didn't show up on the scene to point His finger at you and tell you how bad you are. And if the church or other Christians or your own understanding of religion has ever made you feel condemned, unworthy, or ashamed, please know that that is not the good news. Whoever put that into you was not speaking on behalf of God and was feeding you a very ancient lie, that you are unworthy of the good news. John, who knew Jesus, ate with Jesus, watched Him live, watched Him die, is saying, God did not send His Son to the world to shake His finger at you, to shame you, or to tell you what a horrible, rotten failure you are. God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but that through Him we might be saved. And this notion of saved simply means rescued. We were separated, now we are together. Saved means I used to wonder what God thought about me, now I know that God loves me. God loved So he did what people in love do, he gave. And when we trust in, when we believe in, when we lean into the very thing that he came to to give us, a relationship with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. So the angel could say with zero qualifiers, I bring you good news, the best news for everyone. For today, a brand new good story begins in the town of Bethlehem. A baby has been born, a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. So this morning, the question is, has there ever been a time, a moment in your life where you have made this exchange? Where you have put your entire trust in the work of Jesus on the cross? Where you int- intentionally stop trusting in yourself? You stop trusting in your prayers, your own belief system, your own goodness, your I'm better than that guy philosophy, your generosity, your church. Whatever you've been trusting in, to make your relationship with God good. Listen, it isn't that complicated. Jesus says, I have some good news. I want to take that fear away. I want to give you the gift of an eternal relationship with the Father. And like any gift that you will be given, you must receive that gift for it to be yours. You must put your full weight on Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond to that because I can't, I can't imagine a better thing to do on December 1st than to say, Jesus, God, I put my whole trust in you. And maybe for some of you, today will be the first time that you'll have an opportunity to do that. But maybe for others in this room, you have been living your life, having made that decision at one point, but you've got up off the stool, and you've begun to lead your life trusting in you, and not fully trusting in God. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity as well to repent from that and find yourself on December 1st at the beginning of this fantastic holiday season saying, I'm going to put my trust 100% in God. Now, that may feel risky. That may feel overwhelming. But here's what I want you to do. Nobody is here to talk you into believing. And nobody can make you believe. But here's what I want you to know. If a year from now, or five years from now, or ten years from now, or eighty years from now, something happens, something begins to rattle around in you, and you begin to doubt your own disbelief. If you ever begin to have questions about your unbelief, if you begin to reconsider, maybe there's something to that idea of good news. I have great news for you. No matter when, no matter who, when you believe in God, He's there for you. And then whenever you choose to believe in Him, He will give you what He has come to give you, which is eternal life. But please know that if you say no to that, you're not saying no to religion. You're not saying no to church. You're saying no to this idea of the good news. You're you're, you're saying no to the good story, the gospel, which is that God loved and He gave. You need to believe, and then you can receive eternal life. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the gospel. And that's the simplicity of church. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. And there's nothing sort of magical about the prayer, but it's a conversation with God. And in that moment, I'm going to give you some time to to contemplate this idea of the good story, this idea of the good news. And then I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if this morning you'd like to say, for the first time, I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to lean into, I'm going to put all my trust in Him then we can do that. If this morning you want to say, listen, I have made that decision, but for for a long time, I've been living on my own trust, trust in myself, my own ability to provide, my own ability to survive, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer of repentance for that as well. But so this is your moment to receive the gift of relationship, to become a child of God, and to have eternal life. So let's pray. You just take a moment. In the stillness and the quietness of this place. And um, and you, you you listen for God's leading in your life. I recognize in a moment like this, in a room like this, there are people who are here just kicking the tires of Christianity. You're saying, this kind of sounds intriguing to me, but I don't know if I believe. Then there are others of you who have been here for a while, but you're just not quite sure yet. You believe in it, but you're not sure you can fully trust it. And then there are some of you who have been a believer for a long time. But currently, you're not trusting in, fully trusting in what it is that He has come to do. So I'm going to pray. And if today is your first day, repeat this prayer quietly to yourself. Father, I want to fully trust You. This Christmas, I want this to be about my relationship with You. I want to be Your child. Forgive me for the sin that has crept into my life. For my lack of belief. Fill my life. Be my friend. Let me follow you. And this morning, if you are among that crowd that have said, you know what? I have made that decision, but for a long time I've been living in my own trust. Then just repeat this prayer with me. Father... Forgive me for stepping off the stool. Forgive me for trying to make my own way. Please forgive me and help me to trust you each and every day. Give me the courage and the strength to live my life trusting you. Father, I pray for each person in this room that as we begin this holiday season, and the craziness and the busyness of, that is all around us. That we would remember the central message of Christmas. Which is that you came as a baby to redeem the world. The good news. The gospel. So this morning if that prayer was a part of your life. I'm going to ask you just with, with your heads down and your eyes closed. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. Prayed that prayer of repentance, thank you, thank you. Prayed that prayer for the first, thank you. Prayed that prayer for the first time, thanks. That you're going to walk out of this place different for having been here this morning. You're going to start this holiday season new, fresh, and in a trusting relationship with God. Thank you. Father, I thank you for these hands and for the decisions that they represent It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Can you clap for those people that just raised their hand? That's pretty great. So if you raised your hand this morning, please know that I'm going to be praying for you because um, there's a lot of strength and a lot of courage that needs to come your way, and so I'm going to be praying for that.